Returning this morning to Hebrews chapter 12 and considering verse 3. We have preached 12, 1 to 3 last Lord's Day morning and made the overriding theme and emphasis of the text clear. But we want to return this morning to that third verse where we find that primary and core command in the text having to do with consideration in the sense of the constant contemplation of Christ in that which he endured in the first advent. The command of Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 relative to our faith is that we constantly contemplate the endurance of Christ, first advent. So we're returning to 12.3 this morning for some additional consideration, primarily for the believer's mind, because the verse is packaged in of itself to be beneficial for your head's sake, for your perspective's sake, for the sake of the stability of your mind. Permit me to read 1, 2, 3, even though we preached this morning only from verse 3. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Father, it is clear, even upon initial reading, that the contemplation of Christ is herein directed toward the benefit of our mental health as believers in Jesus Christ. And so help us then today as we think a little more about this pondering of our prince unto the betterment of a perspective that honors you day in and day out, regardless of circumstances that rise and fall in the ebb and flow of life. Bless then the understanding of the passage of Scripture to the benefit of this flock, and for that we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. Proverbs 24.10 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Duh. The neighbor has a number of dogs. One of them is a little snot. Very barky. 
acts like it's going to just eat you up when you walk across your own yard. But all I have to do is stop and look at that little runt. And he immediately turns around and goes the other way. Beautiful illustration of uh, little dog, little faith, little confidence in Christ. Matthew records four separate occasions when the Lord Jesus on earth rebuked his disciples for their little faith. We return to the imperative in this text, Hebrews 12.3, regulating the race that is set before us, involving deliberate mindfulness of Christ. And that deliberate mindfulness of Christ is predicated and dedicated as a means to avoid mental and spiritual despondency as a believer during the days of earthly sojourn. The deliberate ordering of the believer's mind after the person of Christ is, of course, a common theme in all of the New Testament epistles. Paul said to the Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Peter said of the believer's earthly struggles and sufferings, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Using verse 3 as some sense of a base camp, I'd like to identify this morning the steps that are necessary for possessing and maintaining a robust and enduring faith before we move on, as does the text, to deal with God's hand of personal discipline and development. Starting at verse 4, where the text goes and where the text takes us has to do with God's personal hand of discipline and development. As we have often said, gaining and maintaining a godly sense of perspective in the fullness of faith is a constant challenge for the child of God on earth. Uh, our faith, unlike the faith of Christ, is not perfect. And wow, do we feel it at times. I love the insights of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who writes that the believer's faith is not like a thermostat that automatically adjusts to the rise and the fall of circumstance, but that faith placed in Christ for salvation must be perpetually exercised and applied to the actual circumstances of life day after day. I'm afraid that many children of God think that the placing of their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior is it 
did it. Done with it. It's over. And now they have the idea that kind of like the thermostat, that every time the temperature falls, the furnace automatically kicks in. They have the idea that somehow that's the way that a believer's faith works. That when the circumstances take a nosedive, whoop, off the cliff, that automatically the believer just adjusts somehow by the power of God, without thought, without prayer, without due diligence. And every mature child of God knows it does not work that way. And yet the lie of the devil is easy to perpetuate that it kind of works that way. And so therefore, people in the pew look at people in the pulpit and say, well, he doesn't have any idea what it's like to have trust God for the things I'm trusting God for. And you have no clue. And many times you look across the pew to the other guy and say, he has, he has no idea what I'm trusting God for. That's an old man. I'm a young man. He's a young man. I'm an old man. That's a woman. I'm a man. Uh, that's, a, that's a mature believer. I'm a young believer. I mean, there's so many ways to have this idea. I can't pray like other people. I can't live like other people. I'm not mature like other people. I'm not like other people. Everybody in this church has got it together but me. And I mean everybody in the church has got it together but you. And, of course, one of the great benefits of being the pastor is that you know, as a pastor, you know that nobody in the church has got it together in any perfect sense. Do you now? You nod your head. It's okay. It won't fall off. This idea, I like this illustration, this idea that faith somehow is like a thermostat. It just kicks in. That the furnace of faith just kicks in. When uh, circumstances take a nosedive, well then, I, I just think that a lot of believers have that basic idea whether they've actually thought about it in that regard at all or not. Nonetheless, sad, grumpy, depressed Christians are not hard to find at all in any local church or uh, local ministry of any kind. And, uh, and we have to acknowledge that that sad thing, that grumpy thing, that depressed Christian thing is a factor in our lack of impact upon the lost and the stifling of our prayers for revival. What am I saying? I'm saying because believers have not learned of God's Spirit through the Scriptures how to maintain their own mind. That evangelism is stifled and revival fires burn dim. I want to speak frankly this morning from this very informative text about the necessity of maintaining our mental and spiritual health in faith as is prescribed. We begin with, in verse 3, a clear reference to the abiding of Jesus Christ on earth, first advent. For consider him that endured. Constantly contemplate Christ, that as a matter of fact, in the first advent, endured. 
I want to speak to you this morning first and foremost about the abiding of Christ. Christ did abide, and that perfectly. Abiding of Christ. The text says that the believer is to constantly contemplate the earthly experience of Christ because he lived trusting or exercising faith in God, perfectly enduring. Perfectly enduring. The word endured here is otherwise translated abide. Perfectly abiding. Now we have a song in our hymn book, Constantly Abiding. But the song is predicated to ask God to do what God has already said he is doing. And we love to pray about things that don't matter, and that's one of them. The truth of the matter is, it is far more important that we pray about our abiding in him than him abiding in us, because he never leaves us, nor does he ever forsake us. Once we have God, we have God, and that forever. Amen? The issue is never God staying put in you. The question is always, you staying put in him. Christ is a perfect example of that in that he abided or endured perfectly. Christ lived on earth constantly abiding in the fellowship of God the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit without measure. The Greek word hupomeno most literally means to remain under a thing, not seeking to flee or to withdraw from under it. The relational faithfulness of Christ to the will of God the Father by the power of the Spirit involved under his embrellement of appointment, suffering, and death. And you and I are asked, yea, commanded. Hebrews 12.3 to meditate to contemplate the actual experience on earth of perfect Lord Jesus Christ remaining under the umbrella of God's appointed suffering and death. He did not look ultimately to skate out from underneath of it. He stayed under the umbrella of God's appointment, even though it was an appointment of suffering and death. To say it otherwise, Christ bore his cross. And of course, we know that literally for our sins. But plainly, Jesus taught in the metaphoric sense that his disciples after him must bear theirs, their cross in the will of God. Our bearing the cross does not involve and bearing his cross. Only Christ can die for the sins of the world. Only he can live the life of God's perfect son, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But the Savior of the world, the Messiah, God the Son, has called us to follow in his steps, to live the life of God's assignment in our own sense of cross-bearing. Christ lived perfectly as every Christian ought to live. And by looking to Jesus, 
we remember that our calling is likewise unto a time of appointed suffering until the glory that is promised us and promised us by God himself. God has not called us to a life of fun. Though there's nothing wrong with fun. And I am glad to have a little. And so should you be. And if you want biblical warrant for that, you should attend the teen and adult Bible study this summer in Ecclesiastes. Because it's one of the things that Solomon says, is that God has appointed to men a little bit of fun. And you really ought to enjoy some as a child of God. But God has not called us to fun. He's called us to faithfulness. And sometimes my faithfulness to God is fun. Sometimes my faithfulness to God is fun. There are elements of my faithfulness to God that are fun. But there's an awful lot of my faithfulness to God that isn't fun at all. And God has not called us to fun. He's called us to suffering. He's called us to a prescribed sense of entering into the sufferings of Christ while living in a sinful world. In order that testimony might be raised. In order that God might be glorified in order that the gospel might be preached. Why, if we could say what sometimes is said in church, which is the most ridiculous thing in all the world, namely, trust the Lord and all your problems will go away. (laughs) Would we have any lack of people here if that were true? Trust the Lord and all your problems will go away. (laughs) If that were true, wouldn't this place be packed? Because everybody wanted to trust the Lord, say they wouldn't have any problems. But that's not what we're called to. We're called to be faithful to God. And if we are faithful to God, then Paul says to Timothy that we should expect as godly believers to experience some suffering and some persecution and some pushback and some opposition because you and I are living the life of Christ on earth while he is bodily absent. And in fact, the church is called his body. The church, which is his body, continues to experience the sufferings of Christ in a sinful world. The Apostle Paul had a high view of that. He said, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. I want to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. A beautiful thing to consider the abiding faithfulness of Jesus Christ under the umbrella of God's appointment. Sherry and I have six umbrellas at least. If not more, I don't like any of them. Rainy day after rainy day after rainy day, when I head out the door, the parsonage, Sherry will say to me, do you want to take an umbrella? And I always say the same thing. No. I'd rather run and get wet. First of all, I don't have hair like Sherry's. My hair is quickly dried. There we go. And so uh, I just hate the thought of being under the umbrella. I just hate the thought of being under. First of all, they make those umbrellas so small that I never really fit anyhow. And so I'm really not interested in taking an umbrella with me ever on a rainy day. But here's the thing. God has assigned to me an umbrella of a life on earth. And I would be amiss to say it doesn't fit me. 
because God is the perfect tailor. And this umbrella is made for me. And under that umbrella of God's grace to me, there is the assignment of wonderful, precious promises, things that are glorious and fun and enjoyable and thrilling. But there are also things under that umbrella that are hard and difficult and scary. And I have to be willing to look to Christ to live as he lived under the umbrella of God's appointment. The abiding of Christ is something that you and I are to recall and to recall and to recall so that we remember how perfected faith operated as the model for our imperfect faith in the days of earthly sojourn here and now. Secondly, consider the antipode of Christ. The word antipode means diametrically opposite. It is used in geography to note the spot on the earth directly opposite to any selected spot of reference. For example, the antipode of Detroit, Michigan is Augusta, Australia. I tried to find the antipode of Elto, couldn't get there. I tried to find the antipode of Grand Rapids, couldn't get there. The closest place I could find was Detroit, Michigan. And the antipode of Detroit, Michigan is Augusta, Australia. Draw a straight line through the earth, starting in Detroit, and you are in Augusta. The word antipode came on my radar when studying the phrase contradiction of sinners. Verse 3, for consider him that endured Christ abiding such contradiction of sinners. That phrase, of course, impacts and defines something of the experience and endurance of the Lord. He endured in actual earthly experience the contradiction, the opposition, the rebellion, and the gainsaying of sinful humanity. Romans 8 describes this in stark terminology. Quote, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. You can draw a straight line from the God-man to his antipode, sinful man. Now I want to say that again but a little bit differently. And I'm going to tell you right now, hard for me to do it. But you can draw a straight line from the God-man to his antipode. Me. He is the sinless one. I am a sinner. 
antipode of Christ. You are the antipode of Christ. And consider the, the contradiction, the opposition, the rebellion. Consider the gaying saying that he endured for sinner's sake, such as we, or such as me. Christ endured sinful man's opposition in a way I never have and in a way I never will. He endured it, earthly life, in a sinful world, being sinless. I, on the other hand, endure as a sinful man. Some of the difficulties that I've endured at the hands of sinful men in a sinful world, the circumstances at school, the circumstances on the job, the circumstances in the church, the circumstances in the ebb and flow of life, some of what I've endured has been very, very difficult to endure, but I've endured them, all of them, as a sinful man. Or a sinner still, in the words of Luther. And therefore, I know of myself that I have not only endured the contradiction of sinners, but I have caused others sinful contradiction. Others have suffered because of me. While the vast majority of my life on earth has been lived as one redeemed by the blood of God's Lamb, yet I know that my own sins were a part of the weight of sin Christ bore for me. And he was faithful in real time and in real earthly experiences with the chitter-chatter, with the gainsaying, with the opposition, with the rebellion that was directed his way, and you can read it in the gospel accounts over and over again, uh, he, uh, he faithfully endured in the face of the antipode of which he was. Before salvation, my life was the antipode of Christ. And now that I'm saved... I am becoming more like my master by the grace and the continuing work of God. I also know that God has promised me as a believer in the Lord Jesus that in the day to come, I will be made perfectly righteous as Christ is righteous in my own flesh. Won't that be a day? I just remind you before you pick on me, it's not today. <laughs> Not today. You and I are to consider the abiding of Christ. You and I are to consider the antipode of Christ, the endurance of sinners as a sinless one. I can tell you this. I would have zapped a lot of people Jesus never zapped. I would have gone with John and James and brought down lightning and thunder. Many times. 
many times. And as much as I've tried to consider it in a holy and godly manner, I cannot get my puny brain around what it must have been like for God the Son on earth as a sinless man. It's healthy for you and I to contemplate such things. Because sometimes some of the suffering, some of the difficulties we face is because of our own sinfulness. But nonetheless, there's value in thinking about the abiding of Christ. There's value in thinking about the antipode of Christ, which is us. He was made in the likeness, said Paul to the Romans, uh, of sinful flesh. He looked like a sinner because he looked like everybody else. He was a human being. But God didn't create Adam as a sinner. Adam chose sin and plunged the whole of the human race into sin. Christ as a second Adam, delivers us from sin. Glory to his blessed name. Consider the abiding of Christ. Consider the antipode of Christ. And then the last thing, consider the atrophy of the Christian. That's where the verse goes here. The atrophy of the Christian. The word atrophy came on my radar because of the fact that by definition, atrophy describes a descent to a lower level of functionality or activity. Uh, During the healing process of broken bones, whether arm or leg or shoulder, and unfortunately, I know way too much about this. The number is currently 11. 11 broken bones in my lifetime, though the doctor assures me that my bones are very strong as a normal man, but apparently I do stupid stuff. And uh, 11 times I've had a broken arm or a broken leg or a broken shoulder. 11 times, 11 broken bones in my lifetime. So I can speak about uh, muscles in an atrophy state uh, with greater authority than most. But nonetheless, when in the healing process of a broken bone and the arm is immobilized or the leg is immobilized or the shoulder is immobilized, uh, what the muscles experience is atrophy. Because those muscles are not used in the same perpetual way, day in and day out, as they usually are to be used, then what happens is they get, uh, at minimum, stiff. And sometimes they barely work at all. But this idea of muscular atrophy is by no means beyond our capacity uh, to wrap our minds around. Normal use and functionality of muscle tissue is dependent upon use. And without use of your muscle tissue, you do not regain and perpetuate any sense of normal use and functionality. Likewise, we can say, because of what our text says, that there is such a thing as spiritual life 
atrophy. When a believer does not rehearse the mind of Christ, the truth of Christ, in constant contemplation, the scripture warns us of the very real possibility of weariness and fainting faith. Faith in Christ is meant to be perpetually exercised as are the muscles of one's arms without flexing of faith in Christ. After placing faith in Christ, the result or consequence is atrophy. You and I must flex our faith or we will have spiritual atrophy. The Greek word weary in verse 3 carries the idea of a person that is sick or feeble. The word translated faint, very interesting, ekluo, out, luo, loose, or unloosed. In this case, God's word says the unloosing of the believer's mind comes as a result of faith unflexed. That without the flexing of your faith, after the pattern of Christ, you become discouraged. You become defeated. You become depressed. A child of God today, apart from a current sense of contemplation of Christ, runs the risk of mental fatigue and a quitting spirit. We might might well call this a sense of spiritual depression. When a saint loses their perspective during the days of earthly sojourn uh, by unflexed faith in God and the truth of God uh, they have, uh, they will experience a sense of of despondency. And believe me when I tell you, that's ugly. And it's ungodly. And you can see it in the lives of biblical characters like Moses and David and Elijah. And I hate to say it, but you could say it at times in me. And I can certainly see it at times in you as we have often seen it even in the lives of many of those that we've admired for years, like John Bunyan, or Charles Spurgeon, or Thomas Watson. Saints for generations have understood the necessity of keeping the mind strong by faith in Christ, by flexing faith in God to keep the mind strong. One of the old hymns, that we have sung has this lyric, Holy Spirit, truth divine, dawn upon this soul of mine, word of God and inward light, wake my spirit, clear my sight. Boy, I'll tell you, I, I could pray that just about every morning. Lord, Awake my spirit, clear my sight. Awake my spirit and clear my sight. Awake my spirit 
and clear my sight. Oh God, awake my spirit and clear my sight. This is that prayer of faith that will save the sick. Or feeble, as James says it. Hebrews 12.3 tells us how to rightly pay attention to our spiritual strength and weaknesses after the pattern of our Lord. We don't have time this morning to uh, uh, develop that thought uh, any farther from a biblical text, but I, uh, I, for instance, have worked in the, in the last couple of weeks like with a common story as reported in Luke 8, 22 to 25. It's the story where Jesus calms the storm. It's one of those four incidences where the Lord says to the disciples, O ye of little faith or feeble faith. And by the way, the word little there means uh, small of number in relationship to uh, a quantity. It also means short in time in relationship to a period of time. And it also means a faintness of spirit in relationship to the spirit. And so the idea is, is that a believer can absolutely experience faint faith in light of earthly circumstances in which faith does not rise in confidence and joy and peace, but rather cowers in despondency and in a quitting spirit because of the things that are around the believer rather than the Lord who is above the believer in finished accomplishments in heaven. God, who has absolutely done the single greatest thing to be done for us, will never withhold his full attention as the storm competes for our attention. He is mindful of you, and you ought to be mindful of him. When David was having a very good day, I mean David was having a very good day, David said to the Lord, Lord, I have been thinking about how much you've been thinking about me, and your thoughts towards me cannot be numbered. God has you on his mind all the time. Uh, all that you and I would have God on our minds all the time. When tempted to fear, inform your faith of God's truth. And after the pattern of Christ, keep on trusting the Lord. Keep on trusting the Lord. What was true for Christ on earth can be true for the Christian on earth. And in this, Hebrews 12.3, you and I are encouraged to flex our faith after the pattern of the Lord Jesus. Father, use this text to the stability of your people's minds in Christ. For we do pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.